Matthew chapter 5, we'll be looking at the text verse today, down in verse number 21. And I have a few pages of notes, and I'm quite certain I won't be getting through the whole thing today, so this will just be an introduction, and as far as we can get, and I'll finish up teaching on this subject at another time, but on the subject of reconciliation, what Jesus had to say in other parts of the Bible, what we see about biblical reconciliation. Matthew chapter 5, and let's begin reading in verse number 21. Matthew 5, verse 21. Jesus says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Here Jesus Christ speaks of how in the Old Testament, time of the law, and even before the law, the death penalty was instituted by God as a punishment for violating the commandment, thou shalt not kill. You've heard it said of old time, thou shalt not kill. That was one of the Ten Commandments. And then it says, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. You see, before the time of the flood, God had not instituted the death penalty. Within the first six chapters of the Bible, we see many examples of how mankind had a little bit more freedom and a little bit more leeway to do what they wanted to do. And as a result, mankind abused that freedom and the world was in such a bad case by Genesis chapter 6 that God said, I'm going to destroy the entire world with a flood except for one man and his family, which is Noah. You know that there was only one language up until the Tower of Babel. The Old Testament law had not yet been given. And other examples, even a longer lifespan, people were able to live hundreds of years as the earth was in a better condition. And after the flood, God said, because of the wickedness of your heart, I'm going to curb that wickedness by checking your freedom in some ways. And that would include the Tower of Babel, which scattered the nations to keep them more separate because the more that people come together, the more wicked they tend to get. It also included instituting the Old Testament law for the nation of Israel, which was very harsh. And it also included God instituting the death penalty. I have several verses that I'll read to you this morning. You may want to write down the reference. It's up to you what you do, but if you try to turn to them all, it would take a long time and you might get lost. So I'll read you just a few. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. This is after the flood. God told them this. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. So God said along with the Tower of Babel and the law and shortening the lifespans to curb the wickedness of man, I'm going to institute the death penalty that if you kill innocent blood, then by man, by government, your blood should be shed. It was always ordained by God to be carried out by someone in a position of authority, by the government, not a vigilante justice where someone assumes his neighbor is guilty and then just goes and takes their life. No, you were supposed to have the right to a fair trial and you had to have two or three witnesses that established the matter. But God is so pro-life that if someone takes an innocent life, he requires their life to be taken in its stead. There's so many reasons for that, but one of it is that it curbs the wickedness of other people when they see the government execute the sword, as the book of Romans said, to righteously take that judgment 
it curbs other people from wanting to commit that sin. Because we're all sinners. We're all wicked. And when there is no punishment at all for sin, then sin runs more rampant. But when people see that there is a severe and harsh punishment, then they fear, and that fear causes them to not want to partake in that sin. So people will say, well, how can you be for the death penalty when the Bible says, thou shalt not kill? The Bible is against the taking of innocent life, but God himself instituted the death penalty for those who took innocent life so that others would see that and that then we all would know how valuable innocent life is to God. We know the story of Cain and Abel. And remember that Cain murdered his brother. He came upon him in the field and took his life because he was jealous of him and he was angry. But that was in the book of Genesis early on before the death penalty was instituted. God said, I will put my mark upon Cain and if any will hurt Cain for the sin that he had done, I will avenge him sevenfold. God said, you're not allowed to punish Cain for what he did. I will take care of that. And what happened even then in the early books of Genesis is we see that other people abused that freedom. There's two very interesting verses in Genesis chapter 23 and verse 24. There was a man named Lamech. The Bible says, And Lamech said unto his wives, Hear ye my voice. Hear ye wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech. For I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. He calls his wives, which is another thing that was different in those days. They had multiple wives, which was never God's ultimate plan. It was for one man and one woman. That's what Jesus said. Uh, for this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother, be joined unto his wife, and they twain shall become one flesh. So there's a lot of things that God may have allowed for a time or that we see happening in the Old Testament where even King David had multiple wives. Things were different. It was a barbaric uh, Old Testament type of age, but it was never God's original plan. At any rate, this man named Lamech comes home to his wives and he tells them, I have slain a man today. I killed somebody to my wounding and a young man to my hurt from everything I can read and see it appears that he was saying there was a man who wounded me there was a young man who bruised me and hurt me and I killed him in vengeance for that that's not proportional someone walks up to you and hits you You're, you don't then have necessarily right to come back upon them at a later time and slay them for vengeance. You do have a right to defend yourself, your property, and all of those things. And then the man said this in verse 24, If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. He said, well, if God said don't hurt Cain for murder and he'll be avenged sevenfold, surely I myself would be avenged seventy and sevenfold because I was even more justified in my killing than Cain was. So we see that people abused that freedom from God and therefore God instituted the death penalty. That's what he's talking about in Matthew 5.21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Then in verse 22, Jesus says this, But I say unto you. So Jesus is saying, however, but I'm going to take it even a step further than what the law said, which the law said is if you kill someone, you'll be judged. Matthew 5, 22. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. 
And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. So we'll break this verse down little by little, but what Jesus is saying most of all in this passage is He said, the law said, don't kill anyone or you'll be judged. But Jesus says, but I say unto you that if you have anger with your brother in your heart, if you're hateful, then you still will be in danger of the judgment, in danger of being judged by God. Jesus makes this point a couple times in, the, in this passage. Um, in verse number 27 and 28, he uses another illustration that it was said in the Old Testament, thou shalt not commit adultery. You would be punished if you did such a thing. Then he says, but I say unto you that if you look with lust in your eyes and lust in your heart, then you are guilty of adultery in your heart, though you have not actually committed that act. And that's what he's saying here in these two verses, is he's saying, look, you may not have murdered anybody, you may not have killed anybody, but you are still guilty in the eyes of God if you hate someone. Because God is able to see the heart and judge when there's sin in our heart. Even if that sin in our heart does not manifest itself outwardly, God sees what is happening. And maybe we didn't commit adultery, but if we lusted, God knows we still sinned. And maybe we didn't murder someone, but if we hated them, God knows and God sees that and He knows that we have still sinned. Uh, look at verse 19. Back up a little bit. Matthew 5 and verse 19. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. If you're a Bible student at all, you know what was the righteousness of the Pharisees. It was this outward righteousness where they did good works. They gave their tithes. They went to the temple. They said their prayers. They fasted. They did outwardly all the things that the Old Testament Word of God was commanding them to do. But Jesus said in in your heart you are far from me. He said you're like a sepulcher where outwardly you're white and beautiful and it looks fine but you go to the inside of the sepulcher which is a grave and it's full of dead men's bones. And Jesus said unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said those Pharisees the righteous leaders except they repented they would not be going into the kingdom of heaven rather they would be lost they would be in danger of what of the judgment because maybe they didn't kill someone but they still hated them and God held them guilty for their sins and he said that those sins separated them from God lust adultery Anger, murder, God equates these things. Now, there is a biblical principle that all sin is not equal. People say, well, all sin is equal. 
And now all sin is sin. And all sin does separate us from God and put us in need of salvation, put us in need of repentance. But there are sins that carry different weights of judgment from God. And if I hate someone with my heart, my life may not be ruined if I curb that hate and don't act upon it. But if I kill someone in broad daylight and I'm judged, my life will absolutely be judged harsher by God and by man for what I did. So if you steal a piece of candy from the store, your heart may bother you. Your conscience may bother you. You may lay awake at night thinking, boy, it wasn't really that much. But I still violated God's law, thou shalt not steal. But if you were to take the life of everyone in the convenience store, that brings a different level of judgment from God. But the Bible does teach, and what this passage is teaching here, is that all sin is sin. And all sin separates us from God. God sees your heart. And Jesus said, yeah, you've heard you're not supposed to kill. But I say unto you, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Verse 22, he says specifically, his brother. Now, we, some of us have brothers and sisters who are, are siblings in our natural family, born from the same parent. But here, brother is in a broader sense. It could be a member of your community where the Jews would go to synagogue. Or here in a New Testament church, we use the phrase brother and sister because we recognize that we are all God's children and we have brothers and sisters in Christ. But there is a sense in which all of mankind is our brother or is our sister because physically all of us can trace our lineage back to Adam and Eve. All of us could trace it back to Noah and to his family, but also the other human beings are our brothers and sisters in the sense that they are created in the image and likeness of God. And the Apostle Paul, I believe, uses the phrase brother for someone who is not saved. He says, condemn not your brother for whom Christ died because you love meat so much that you don't care if you offend them or not. We taught on that subject before. But 1 John 4, 20 says this, if a man say... I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? First John, the apostle says, you may say I love God and claim to love God, but if you hate your brother, you're a liar. Because if you love God truly like you should, you would not look to someone else who is an image bearer of God and hate them. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this verse. He's talking about hatred. Now the next phrase, he says, whosoever is angry with his brother, and we're in Matthew 5.22, without a cause, without a cause, without some righteous justification for some anger. The Bible does teach that anger is a sin and that anger in our hearts will destroy us. But there are a few occasions where the Bible indicates there can be a, an emotion of anger and of being upset and perturbed that could be called a righteous indignation that God would not judge us for. Um, a few times in the scripture, here we see the phrase, without a cause. In the book of Ephesians, it says, Be ye angry and sin not, and let not the sun go down upon your wrath. 
Jesus in the temple, he went and he saw that they were cheating people and they were saying, no, the animals that you bring are not suitable for sacrifice. You have to buy these animals to make the sacrifices. And they were upcharging them and poor people were either not able to give their sacrifice or had to spend an inordinate amount of money. And do you know what Jesus did? He got upset. He didn't walk in there and lose his temper and fly off the handle in a way that we might. He planned to lose his temper. He knew this was going to happen. He was righteously angry. He said, you have taken my father's house and turned it into a house of merchandise when it's supposed to be a house of prayer. And Jesus, who sometimes the world pictures as being just all soft and mild-mannered, though he no doubt was, he flipped the tables over, he took a whip, and he chased the money changers all the way out of the temple. That takes some strength. That takes some courage for one man, though he was God, he was in human form, to flip the tables over and send them running. That's what Jesus did. And every now and then, there is a case where it's okay to get angry and where it's okay to say, someone's trying to hurt my family. Someone's trying to do evil to a child. Someone's trying to hurt the church of God. And there should be a righteous indignation that we're willing to do whatever it takes to put a stop to that. Proverbs 25 and 23 says that the north wind drives away the cold, or uh, I, I had the verse but didn't, the north wind drives away rain, so doth an angry countenance a backbiting tongue. So the illustration in Proverbs is used that sometimes there's someone who has a backbiting tongue. They're always criticizing. They're always gossiping. They always have something negative to say. And maybe they come to say something about you or your family or your church or whatever the case may be. And it says that as the north wind comes and drives that rain away, an angry countenance will turn them away. Every now and then someone needs to be rebuked. Every now and then someone needs to see that we care enough about the truth. Not that we're angry people or that we hate them, but that we We'll confront them if necessary. We preached from the book of Jude last week. Have compassion on some. And others make a distinction and save them with fear. Cause them to have that fear. Proverbs says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. The very next verse says, answer thou a fool according to his folly. And help me, I, I know I messed that up. A little bit backwards. Answer a fool according to his follies, lest he be wise in his own conceits. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou be like unto him. Lest thou be like unto him. So how do you reconcile that? One verse says, don't answer a fool. The other one says, answer. The truth is that every now and then the situation is going to be different. And we have to look to God to see which of those proverbs and which of those principles applies. Sometimes someone may be so foolish, they will just never listen. And all you're being... All that's happening to you is you're being drawn in to this unending debate and they're happy, they like it. And sometimes there may be someone else standing by and someone says something foolish and there's a perfect answer from God and the Lord will say, go ahead and answer that. Rebuke it because the one standing by needs to hear. So as I said, if you'll stick with me, we're going to be done in 20 minutes. We are going to be done early this morning and then have the baptism next door. But most of the time, it's true that our anger is sinful anger. The Bible cont contains much more warnings against anger and rebukes against anger than it does those few instances where we may be justified. So Jesus does include the phrase, if you're angry with your brother, without a cause, without justification. Then he says this, 
shall be in danger of the judgment. If you're angry with your brother without a justifiable reason, then you're in danger of what? Of the judgment. Uh, the other place in the Bible it says, as much as lieth in you, whenever possible, live peaceably with all men. But that leaves the small window there for when someone is attacking us, sometimes war is even justified by God to defend your children, to defend your freedom, to defend your rights and sometimes it's not possible David said in the Psalms, when I speak with them I am for peace but they are for war. Sometimes there are enemies who will not accept peace and it is justified by God to resist or to push back okay, so remember what did he say in Matthew 5.20? He said, except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you're not going to enter into heaven. You cannot go. And here he says, if you're angry with your brother, you shall be in danger of the judgment, even though you didn't kill him. God sees the anger in your heart, and God will judge sin. All sin separates us from God, and all sin is sin. Anger that's not justified is a sin, and sin bring God's, brings God's judgment. This to me is convicting. This is frightening. This matches the teaching of Revelation 21.8. It's speaking of all the people that shall be cast into the lake of fire and the sins that they have committed. And it says, but the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, all of those terrible sins, and then it tacks on this phrase at the end of the verse. And all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In other words, maybe you weren't a murderer. Maybe you weren't some of those other horrible sins listed in the passage, but God tacks on all liars. You say, well, all of us have committed a sin at some point on that level. Are we all hopeless? No, the answer is that we have to have repented and believed in Jesus Christ and have His righteousness cover our sins so that those sins would not be applied unto us. There's another place in the New Testament in Corinthians where Paul's telling them that you people who have committed these sins shall not enter into the kingdom of God. But the next verse says this phrase, and such were some of you. However, you are justified, you are sanctified, you're washed by the blood of Christ. So that if we have received Jesus Christ's righteousness, when we stand on that day to be judged, he will not look at us and say, well, that's a murderer, that's an unbelieving, that's a liar. He will look and say, their sins have been forgiven. Jesus' record has now been applied to their account. The Bible says of God the Father that he made Jesus to be be sin. Though he knew no sin, he made him to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's what it's like. His record covers our record as if we had committed an offense of a speeding ticket and then we couldn't pay the fine and couldn't pay the fine. Eventually they put out a warrant for your arrest and you stand before the judge and he says, you'll either pay for this with money or you'll get thrown into prison until your time is up. And we say, I can't pay. I have to be punished. But then if someone else was to come and to say, I will pay their fine, even though it's my money, apply it to their account, you would walk free. 
And Jesus Christ died for our sins, and if we will receive Him as Savior and believe in Him and trust Him, not our good works, not our own righteousness, not our church membership or our baptism, but just trust in Christ for what He did, then when we stand before God, just like someone else's money would get paid to our account for our ticket, Jesus' righteousness will get applied to our account to save us. But if we have not been saved when we stand before God, we will be seen as an unbelieving or as a liar. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not lie. If all of us are honest, (laughs) we would admit we've told a lie at least one point. When we were old enough to know better, we probably skirted the truth or omitted something or told a lie because we didn't want to face the consequences. And God says that is sin. Not only does He say it's sin, but contained in the book of James, it says if we were to keep the whole law perfectly, yet offend in one point, we are guilty of all. And then it gives the reason. For the same God that said thou shalt not commit adultery and thou shalt not kill also said thou shalt not lie. So then if you do not commit adultery and you do not murder, yet you have lied. Oh my goodness, brothers and sisters, if we were to think of what that means, what that teaching from James means, if we were to try to earn our way to heaven through our own righteousness, if you were to live your whole life and keep all the law perfectly, yet one time you broke God's law, the Word of God itself says you are guilty of all of it. How could we do enough good works to outweigh all of the evil that's ever been committed? It's not possible. That's why the Word of God says, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. No man, no woman will be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven and say, I am here because of my works. I have something to boast of. Not to achieve salvation, not to keep salvation, not 10%, 5%, one or one half percent of our salvation will we be able to say we earned. It's all a free gift from God. When I was a child, I was with my dad on a visit one time, our pastor emeritus, and he was trying to share the gospel with someone, with a lady, and he said, he showed her that verse about liars, and he said, if, you know, will you admit that you've lied before God and that you would be classified as a liar? She said, she said, well, I've, I've lied and I've sinned, but I'm not a sinner. I've lied, but I'm not a liar. In other words, I may have tripped up a couple times, but it doesn't reach the level of being so bad that that's how I would be defined. And he told her if you were to stand before a judge and say, look, judge, I've lived a pretty good life. I've been here 30, 40, 50 years, and I only slipped up and killed someone that one time. You can't really call me a murderer, can you? And in the eyes of God, though we have only sinned sometimes, we are still guilty and we need His righteousness to cover us. As I said, all of this is on the topic of biblical reconciliation. There's, it applies to us and God, to us and other relationships. And I'll be teaching on this more in weeks to come to get through this. So let's look back here to Matthew chapter 5 and continue on. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 22. Jesus said, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Next phrase of the verse. 
And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council. That word Raka is an Aramaic word that came to be this derogatory term if you wanted to insult someone. The basic root meaning of the word is empty and worthless. In other words, it would be if you looked at someone and called them that phrase, Raka, you would be saying, you're a fool, you're empty-headed. In our day and age, we'd say, you're an idiot, you're a moron. And then it says, if you call someone a name like that, you'll be in danger of the council. This here, I believe, is referring to that Jewish leaders, they would have a group of elders that made up the council for the tribe, and someone could come and say, this guy's calling me insults and names in public. And in that Jewish culture, I've heard that honor was a very big and important thing. That's why sometimes to them it's hard to accept you have to believe in Jesus and accept His righteousness rather than earning your salvation because if they did something wrong, they'd have to work to pay it off and to have their honor restored. So you'd come to the religious leaders and elders of the council and you'd say, He's insulting my good name in public and it's without cause. They would be in danger of the council. They could be judged and have punishment inflicted upon them for calling someone that name and mistreating their brother. Then Jesus says, But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. It's worth stopping and noting that Jesus Christ taught the doctrine of hell, of eternal separation from God, of eternal fire and flame. And he actually spoke about that more than he spoke about the place of heaven. And he says, Yes, you may be in danger of the council, Then he says, but if you say unto your brother, thou fool, that now is a Greek term that has somewhat the same meaning as that other term, raka. Whether it was a slight elevation or whether it's just the exact same type of thing, the word itself means dual. Uh, I'm sorry, it means dull. If you were to call someone thou fool, in the Strong's Concordance, it said stupid or blockhead. That's a, a modern way that we would look at it. Jesus says, yes, you may be in danger by calling someone a fool of the counsel of human judgment. But if you call your brother a fool and you're showing what? That hatred in your heart, you shall be in danger of hellfire. What is Jesus teaching? He's teaching that, yes, sin may have human consequences, but sin in our heart and even the sin of calling someone an insult that shows that we hate them puts us in danger of God's judgment and eternal separation from Him. As I said, that's why we need Christ's righteousness to cover our sins. Remember, He said, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees or you cannot enter into heaven. Let's look at Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13 and verse number 1. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? 
There was a group of Galileans who it says in verse 1, Pilate had mingled their blood with their sacrifices. In other words, while they were in their temple making whatever kind of sacrifices they made, Pilate gave the order for their blood to be shed and the soldiers came in and killed them. And Jesus said, do you think that they suffered such a horrible, tragic death because their sin was worse than the sin of any other Galileans? This is the question that arises sometimes. There's a tsunami and a lot of people die and they say, how could God allow this to happen? Is it because their sin was so much worse than everybody else's sin? Remember Job's friends? They came to Job after he lost everything and he was sick and his possessions were ripped from him and his children died. And they said, there is no way God would allow this to happen to anyone except it was for the reason that your sin was so bad. Your sin is worse than our sin. Therefore, God is punishing you. Were they right? No, they were not. In the end of the book, God himself showed up and said, I have allowed this to happen. Job was more righteous than you. And your accusation was a false accusation. God had a plan in it. God worked forth righteousness through the trials of Job. And throughout all the history of the church, God's people have had in his eternal word a copy of the story so that we might have hope, so that we might know maybe this trial is not happening to me because my sin is more wicked than another, but maybe just maybe it's because God is trying my faith and God wants to accomplish his eternal purpose through this. Jesus answered, do you think their blood was shed by Pilate because they were worse than you? Verse 3, I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. One more example he gives in verse 4. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? Here you have a group of 18 people in Siloam and there was a, a tragic event. A tower collapsed. The structure failed. We just saw that happen in Florida recently where tragically people died. The same type thing happened and 18 of them were trapped under it and died. And Jesus said, do you think it's because they were sinners above all the rest of the people in Jerusalem? Verse 5. I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Here Jesus teaches that sometimes God himself allows tragic events to take place where people die because he wants all of humanity to be shaken up a little bit and to remember all of us are going to die. We may not be in a tower that crashes, but even if we lived another 40 years after that, life is still short. It's still a vapor that appears and then vanishes. And he said, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. Even though it's not in that same way, you will perish by being separated from God in eternity. He's, here, Jesus himself tells us that it's necessary for us to repent. The Apostle Paul said in Acts 17, 20, God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Repentance is necessary for salvation. Repentance simply means to change your mind or it means to turn. It means in all of our sincerity, with all of our heart, we recognize we're sinners. We recognize we're separated from God and we turn from our righteousness. We turn from our doubt and we change our mind and our thinking and we say, Jesus, I believe in you. Please be my savior. I believe in you. I receive you. Someone said true biblical faith and repentance 
is like being in an airplane and putting on a parachute and jumping out of that airplane. You turn completely from the airplane as your hope to keep you alive. You jump out. That's like repentance. We put all of our faith and trust in Christ. And then you trust that that parachute will save you and nothing else. So too, we repent, we turn, we say, I trust Jesus Christ in His righteousness and nothing else to save me. Five more minutes, roughly, and I'm going to be done. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter 5. We come now to the application of this truth that Jesus said, that the hatred in our heart is also sin, just as much as the murder would be sin. And then he applies it to the teaching of reconciliation. Verse 23, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, He said, now this may happen to you, speaking to the Jews. You may go into the temple of God, to the altar, where you're supposed to bring your gift, your sacrifice to God, whatever it is. You're bringing it as an offering to God to be made right with Him, to give back to God of what He's given you. And he says, you're going into the temple, you stop and you remember that thy brother hath aught against thee. Against thee here indicates that you offended someone. You did something that was wrong. Either carelessly or purposely, you did something to someone else, they are offended, and your relationship is not right between each other. Now, it it indicates there were words or actions that were offensive or injurious to that person. You were careless and or, or purposefully you did something wrong and it led to an angry conflict between you and another person. Now, I would stop and note that sometimes there are false accusations. Somewhat times someone may come up to us and say, you did this and you offended me. You did this and you were wrong. You did this and you need to make it right. We should stop. We should pray. We should consider. And every now and then there's things people are saying that are not true and are not fair. So we should leave those behind and say, God, I I can tell that at best of my knowledge, asking other people, looking at your word, I'm right with you. I'm right with them. So I'm just going to try to love them in return. But I don't really need to take any further actions. False accusations are always a part of things. In the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 19, 18 and 19, God said that if the judges held an inquisition and someone brought an accusation before another person and they went through the evidence and it was determined that the person making the accusation was making a false accusation, do you know what was then going to happen? God instructed that whatever the penalty would have been for the guilty party was to be applied to the false witness. Murder is a horrible sin. Sexual harassment, fornication, those things are horrible sin. However, an intentional false accusation against someone of doing those crimes God says they are just as guilty of sin as someone who had committed that other sin. And if you were found to have tried and say, well, this person violated someone and attacked them, they should die. And it was found out that you did it intentionally. You yourself would have to die for being a false witness. 
It's a big deal to God. That's why the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. But sometimes people come to us and they point things out or maybe God Himself brings it to our mind and we stop and we say, Wow, I did something wrong. And then we need to be humble enough to repent, to go to the person, to go to God and to express that we're sorry and to make things right. There was a pastor who said that there was one person who was in and out of his church and he said, every year at the end of the year they would ask to have a meeting with me. And I would know what was coming because it was a person who was critical. And they would come and they would come with a list of complaints and of grievances. And they would say, Pastor, you preached on this and I don't think it was right. And they would say, this person in this church did this to me and I was offended. And you did this and you didn't do that. And he said, I decided that I would go ahead and listen to what they had to say. And he said, pretty much every year they'd say something and I'd go, that's not fair. They're not right. They said that and they're out of line. They said that and I don't think so. But he said as he would write down the list, almost every single year God would prick his heart about one thing that was said. And he would circle it. And he would say, God, I humble myself and I ask you to help me make this right and to get better and to learn and to grow in this area. I'm out of time and I'm going to continue preaching this next week. But the biblical principle is that when you have something against someone, you go to them and you try to work it out. And oftentimes we do not follow that biblical prescription. We get angry at someone and we hold it in our hearts. We gossip to other people. And instead of going one-on-one, and then even with the help of two or three, and then the help of the whole church if necessary, God says He wants us to seek reconciliation and in humility seek to make it right. And the, the downside of that could be that we get on this track where all of the time we're too easily offended and there's things that we could just let go that we go argue with everybody about. That's not what God wants either, but He does want us to seek reconciliation. So I'm going to pick up teaching here probably next Sunday morning unless God changes our mind, but I do want to remind us, as I said, as an announcement, we have baptism scheduled to take place this morning. The water is warm and all ready to go, but because we had our power outage, the building is warm also. So Brother Jason is going to come in a moment and lead us in a song for about five minutes. And those of us who are partaking in the baptism will go next door to get all set. And whoever is able to, even though the building is warm, will just gather in the front. We'll have the baptism and then we'll be dismissed. But I did want to say this. The Bible teaches that baptism reconciles our conscience to God. Not our soul itself, but our conscience. 1 Peter 3.21 says, The like figure whereunto now even baptism doth save us. Then the Bible says, Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when Paul says the filth of the flesh, he always uses that term to refer to our sinfulness and our sin nature. He says baptism does not wash away our sins. It doesn't save us. But it does save us by giving us a good conscience toward God. Why? Because God has instructed that it would be the first step of Christian obedience. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the Great Commission. Jesus told the disciples, Go ye into all the world, give the gospel, make disciples, 
and then baptized them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, and Acts chapter 16, we see an example of people who received Christ as Savior, then they were baptized in the water after they were saved. We also see indications of events in Scripture where people were saved, but baptism is not mentioned in the story. Therefore, baptism is not necessary for salvation. It just is the first step of Christian obedience because it illustrates our identification with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Romans 6.4 Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. And then Colossians 2.12 Buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised Him from the dead. So baptism is the first step of obedience after we have received Christ as our Savior. We baptize by immersion because that's what the word baptism means in the Bible. It's not just a sprinkling. It's a complete immersion into the water. And it, there's a blessing that God wants you to have by testifying to the church and to your family and to all who would look publicly to say, I am a Christian. I am identifying with Jesus, His death, burial, and resurrection. It doesn't save us, but it's a step of obedience to God. So with that being said, Brother Jason, if you will come.